following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. When you saw them, you wouldn't think them of some sort of unique or different couple. Tom and Stacy had been married 12 years. They had two children, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. Tom was a computer programmer, and Stacy stayed at home mainly, but she did have a job at the local dry cleaners. Both attended church pretty regularly. Uh, they weren't really super solid, but it seemed like they knew Christ. And then everybody was shocked. <clears throat> One day, Tom moved out of the house and moved into an apartment with a buddy. What happened? Well, the story unfolded that day after day, Tom came home almost every night, ate his dinner, and fell asleep on the couch. Increasingly, he paid Stacy little attention when she got home from work, except when he wanted intimacy. In response, Stacy pulled away from him emotionally, and then Tom, in turn, lost all feelings for Stacy. All they had in common was their marriage was on the same day. They lived under the same roof, and they had two increasingly distracted children. What they did share together was anger, frustration, arguments, and massive loneliness. Tom felt that the marriage was over, and then Stacy filed for divorce. In some people's minds, divorce is actually worse than death. It has become so common, though, even among typical church families, that people these days don't even bat an eye when it occurs. What causes divorce? What you most often hear is, well, we just drifted apart. What was easy became difficult, and what was difficult became impossible. The reasons they give are lack of communication, difficulties with intimacy, alcohol, debt, infidelity, in-laws, uncontrolled anger, suspicion, jealousy, insensitivity, boredom, lying, instability, accusations, and even physical abuse. All of it summarized under one word, the word sin. Sin that's undealt with, sin that's not confessed, sin that is tolerated, it's excused, sin that's justified in their verbal communication. If they're Christians, it's believers who are not living by the Word of God and the power of the Spirit and their sanctification, and they are not working at their marriage an absolute priority in this fallen planet with who we are but prior to heaven. The starting place for divorce is a man and a woman who are not pursuing Christ and are not following his design for a husband and a wife as described in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. In that passage, it describes that men are to love their wives. They're to die to themselves to make that marriage work, to adore their spouse even when she is no longer that sweet little Dorothy and starts to act more like that, I'll get you my pretty wicked witch. He's the washer in God's Word, do all he can to cultivate her growth in Christ, 
to woo her on so she becomes more like Jesus. That same passage also talks about wives being those who would desire to follow their husbands in spiritual leadership and as he pursues obeying God's word and to submit to their own husbands as if you were Christ and he seeks hopefully to lead only and always, desiring her best and always and only according to the word of God. Much of their marriage, which is so lost today, is made up of oneness. One heart, one mind. The the godly husband rarely has to override his wife's counsel, wishes, or advice because they're both one and they're more one than they are two. It's us together. And so, because of that oneness, sadly, so many Christian marriages have only one Christian in them, or no Christians at all. Not all marriages function by God's design, by God's word. And when the word of God is not the authority, then all of a sudden, some of these marriages can get sick. They can be in ICU, and then when it is not the authority, God's word, then divorce becomes a part of the discussion. But what does God think of divorce? God is very clear in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. He says what? I what? Hate divorce. Say that with kind of a little bit of zeal, would you? I what? Hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. That verse requires no interpretation, friends. It's plain. God hates, hates any attempt to break the covenant of two he's joined together. Jesus taught the permanency of marriage. He made it very clear in Matthew 19. And when he was tested by the Pharisees, asking him if it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife, what does he say? He says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses, Deuteronomy 24, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has what? Not been this way. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus is referring again to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. He gave instructions about divorce that men were to follow and women were to follow in the Old Testament, but men began divorcing their wives contrary to God's will, God's word, and God's desires. Sadly, this pattern of easy divorce actually made its way into the New Testament era. Again, Jesus is talking in the north side of the Sea of Galilee. He's talking to a huge crowd of people, and he's telling them what was happening in that first century. And so Christ clarifies the difference between the shallow pattern of divorce from the oral traditions. Those are the rules that the rabbis made up, that they began to follow, not God's word. And he compares that to God's true and his true design from God's word. Again, we're studying, if you're new with us, the Sermon on the Mount, verse by verse, word by word, and Jesus is comparing the oral tradition with biblical truth by saying this, you heard it said, oral tradition, but I say to you, God's word. And he makes it very clear that there's a massive difference between their approach to divorce and remarriage than what the Bible actually has to say. And so for the third time now in Matthew chapter 5, he makes that comparison. You've heard it said in the oral tradition and the Jewish religion, but I'm telling you what God's word has to say. So if you would, join the 12, the additional disciples that are there, a huge crowd, an acoustical slope, north side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a perfect day. They're listening to Christ preach, and he gets to this third now You heard it said, but I say to you, read with me aloud, if you would, from your outline so we can read it together, what Jesus says. It's only two verses. Everyone together, here we go. 
it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let her give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, what does that mean? What does that mean? Let me give you the Reader's Digest version of that particular passage. Basically, simply, divorce for any reason leads to adultery when there is a remarriage. It was said, that's what the rabbis taught, religious leaders taught, the rabbis taught, the scribes taught, you can divorce for any reason, they'd say, just make certain you do the paperwork. But the Lord and His Word is different. That's what the rabbis taught you. That's what we're all living by, easy divorce. But let me say to you this. What's he say? I say, marriage, if your spouse breaks the marriage by adultery, stated here, or abandonment over your faith, as stated in 1 Corinthians 7.15. So we're looking at a broader perspective. We're looking at all of what the New Testament says and these two verses today. So, and abandonment over your faith, then that innocent spouse, the one who didn't commit adultery, the one who didn't abandon, can choose to divorce, since their partner broke the marriage by their actions of adultery or abandonment. But if they divorce not because of adultery, or later on in the New Testament, abandonment, then when they remarry, they commit adultery in the eyes of God. That's the Reader Digest version of that passage. Did you get it? That's what it says. Divorce is a paralyzing discussion and topic. Paralyzing. It divides people. That's why churches and preachers avoid it like the plague. Interesting enough, Jesus does not. Jesus is in your face, okay, and in my face. He is very direct. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't look for an easy answer. He tackles it head on, and as he does, there are several truths about marriage Divorce and remarriage that you and I must embrace and teach. What are they? Okay, we're going to look at these two verses. These points come out of these verses. Also, the teaching of the New Testament all together. We're going to give you the basic framework, not every specific situation that's got to be dealt with, but let's deal with it, okay? Let's get the framework down, right? The lens that you want to look at this with. Number one in your outline, marriage is between one man and one woman. How radical is that? Until separated by death. Now, you'd all agree, till death do us part, right? Weddings are fantastic. Till death do us part. One life, one wife. And the original blueprint is Genesis 2.24. What's it say? For this reason, a man shall, what? Leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, glued to her, and they shall become one flesh. Listen, it wasn't your snappy good looks that got that girl to say yes. All right? It wasn't that you just have the perfect hourglass figure and puppy dog eyes. Okay? It wasn't that. It wasn't because you laughed at his jokes. That's not what brought you together. What brought you together was, are you ready? God. God tells you that. Listen, singles. Singles. You say, who's the woman for me? Who's the man for me? I can't tell you. But when you walk down that aisle... And you face that guy and you make a vow to God saying, I do, that's the one for you. At that point, for life. That's what the Bible says. Matthew 19, verse 6. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Who put you together? What therefore God has joined together. Let no man separate. You're, you're two people, now one. 
male and female, but married. Closer than a parent-child, daddy-daughter, mother-son, friends. This is your mate for life. One flesh joined in the most intimate union possible in this life. The most intimate union possible in this life. This is lost today. Couples wrongly approach marriage as an addition. I still get to do what I want to do, and I get a spouse addition. Or they approach it the other way as a subtraction. I can no longer be the carefree single I need to be. I lose. Well, listen, instead of doing it the way the, mar- the Bible says it, viewing marriage rightly as a, write it down, transformation. You're a brand new entity. That's what the Bible's trying to tell you. You're one with this person. You're now married, and as you're married, you've got to figure out what's, ready, best for this marriage of one over personally what you want. And if you don't want to do that, here's the clue. Don't get married. Because that's what marriage is. You're one over what you individually want. All is shared. You're one unit. Write this down, please. Our best over my desires. God's best over my desires. Our best, write it down, over my desires. Say it with me, ready? Our best over my desires. That's marriage. When couples assert their individual will over their oneness in marriage, then marriage can erode and possibly even be broken. Number two in your outline. Let's get the framework, the lens, looking at all of Scripture and these two verses specifically. Sexual immorality and abandonment are biblical grounds for divorce. Sexual immorality and abandonment are biblical grounds for divorce. Jesus makes this incredibly clear about immorality in verse 32. Look at it. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of what? Unchastity. Matthew 19 says immorality. I'm going to define that term for you. Makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The Apostle Paul here inspired, and again, just as much God's word as the Gospels and Christ's words himself, he clarifies that abandonment over your faith as the only additional biblical grounds for divorce. Adultery or immorality, and then abandonment. In 1 Corinthians 7.15, he says, Yet if the unbelieving spouse, the unbelieving one, leaves, they leave because they don't want anything to do with your Christianity, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Generally, Paul's describing a non-believer who abandons their believing Christian spouse because of their faith. They don't want anything to do with Christ and Christianity. But specifically, the circumstances of abandonment are broader and more complex. But here we go. But don't be confused about what a marriage is. This will be helpful to you to understand difficult situations. Marriage is a vow to God, and also before witnesses, and it is a union of a man and a woman sealed in sexual intimacy. It's a vow and a union. That's Christian marriage, a vow and a union. The marriage can be broken... When the union is broken by adultery or immorality. And the marriage can be broken when the vow is broken by abandonment. Did you get that? There are two reasons that establish a Christian marriage and there's two reasons that can lead to divorce. God's plan is for a husband and wife to remain married for life. But the Lord teaches that divorce may be permissible under those two circumstances alone. 
And it's not surprising, is it, that the Lord's teaching on divorce in verses 31 and 32 just follow his teaching on adultery and lust from verses 27 to 30. So these are the exception clauses. Adultery and abandonment. Adultery breaks the marriage. Not lust of the heart, but the action of adultery. You don't divorce over mental issues. Okay, It's not the lust of the heart, but the action of adultery and abandonment. Adultery breaks the marriage. Jesus affirmed this again. Matthew 19, verse 9, what's he say? He says, and I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for, what? Immorality. And marries another woman, commits adultery. And again, the Lord is clear in verse 32. Sexual immorality created a biblically permissible exception, allowing a divorce to, uh, I mean, a spouse to divorce his or her mate. And again, there's no gender distinction here. The Bible is very clear as to who initiates a divorce under these circumstances, Matthew 5.32, it's a husband who divorces his wife. Now watch this. Mark chapter 10, verse 12, it's a wife who divorces her husband. But in both cases, it can only be because of the two reasons, what? Adultery and abandonment. And again, this is actual adultery, not mental adultery. There's no divorce for lust of the heart, only for lust expressed in adultery. Actual adultery, not mental adultery of pornography. Your mind doesn't break a marriage. Otherwise, we'd all be divorced. Okay? It's your actions do that. So notice, Jesus says, except for the reason, verse 32, of unchastity, Matthew 19, uh, immorality. That, that Greek word there is porneo, and, and it's best evidence supports that this word involves, unchastity, sexual relationships with anyone other than your spouse. Write that down. It's sexual relationships with anyone other than your spouse, and that broadly includes incest, homosexuality, prostitution, molestation, indecent exposure, and any other active physical sexual involvement with any person or creature. Sexual immorality and abandonment are the biblical grounds for divorce. He's also trying to protect the innocent party here, so Jesus also is very direct. And number three in your outline, divorce and remarriage without biblical grounds constitutes adultery. It constitutes adultery. Again, what's he say? Verse 32. We're looking at this and then looking at the New Testament. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause or reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus makes it clear who he's talking to. Do you see it? Verse 32. What's he say? He says who? Everyone. There's no exceptions. Abandonment was not common uh, among the Jewish people in the first century, so Christ only focused on the one exception that was common among the listening crowd there when he's preaching to them, unchastity. And, and here's the exception, verse 32, except for the reason of unchastity, and that's also immorality in Matthew 19, this is the one of the two reasons which permits divorce in God's eyes. Outside of adultery, and then add later on, 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, abandonment, all divorce is sinful, and it leads to greater sin. If it's not because of those two reasons, it's sinful and leads to greater sin. Jesus says divorce beyond these exceptions, verse 32, makes her commit what? Adultery. Or causes her to commit adultery. Now how is that? Try to picture this if you can. 
by describing a wife in the Jewish culture, if she is divorced, for her to survive in the first century, she's going to have to get remarried. But in the act of getting remarried, if she was not divorced because of her own adultery or her own, uh, I mean, abandonment or her husband's, then she will be committing adultery in her union with her new husband. Because she was divorced without biblical grounds, by remarrying, she enters into the act of adultery. Are you getting it? If it wasn't for those reasons. It's the same for the man who marries her at the end of verse 32. Jesus says, again, at the very end, verse 32, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. If any man marries a woman who was divorced for any reason other than adultery or abandonment, then he too commits adultery, even if he's never been married before. If the exception, listen, are not the reason for the divorce, then adultery will occur with any remarriage, no exceptions. Let me say it again. If the exceptions, adultery or abandonment, are not the reason for the divorce, then adultery will occur with any remarriage without exception. That's God's design. But when the divorce was because of adultery or because of biblical abandonment, then remarriage does not constitute adultery. Everyone agrees with this, by the way. You teach this in a local church, everybody agrees. Yep, 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 yeah, I get it. It's good. Until they want to divorce their spouse. And then what they get and what they do, and it's happened multiple times, I've seen it, they'll embrace some aberrant author, some wacko preacher who invents another meaning to Christ's clear words here in order to justify their desires and their actions. That's what happens. They go, well, that doesn't really mean that. Marriage in God's eyes is a lifelong promise. Can I hear an amen to that? Even when your marriage is difficult and should not be broken or divided, but when some active expression, physical expression of sexual immorality or biblical abandonment occurs, this breaks the marriage bond in God's economy and the innocent party, the one who didn't commit adultery and wasn't abandoned, can divorce and remarry to protect them. Jesus is trying to stop this proliferation of adultery and this proliferation of, adult, of divorce. He's trying to stop it. That's God's plan. That was always God's plan and which it was occurring with the spiritual leaders of the first century and with the crowd that he's speaking to. Moses laid down God's truth in Deuteronomy 20, chapter 24, but the rabbis, they took that passage and they murdered it. And they made it a license to commit adultery. They did. Number four in your outline, the Old Testament law on divorce was designed to protect against frivolous divorce and to stop the cycle of adultery. To stop it. When Jesus was preaching the sermon, there are two rabbinic schools that were at play that basically interpreted Deuteronomy 24 two different ways. Are you ready? Uh, on divorce. Now, verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament says this. Take a look at your outline. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Now, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 of Deuteronomy 24 were interpreted two different ways, mainly, during the time of the first century. Are you ready? The Shammai school, S-H-A-M-M-A-I. They taught that sexual sin was the only permissible 
reason to end a marriage by divorce. They said only adultery, only immorality could then permit a divorce. The Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L, the Hillel school argued that anything a wife did that displeased her husband provided a valid grounds for divorce. Now, which view do you think was the popular view at the time that Christ was preaching to the crowd? Which one? Hillel. Divorce for anything. No fault divorce. Does that sound familiar? So the crowd that Jesus is talking to is just like our day. They are buying up divorce. No fault divorce. So motivated by lust, what the rabbis did, and it was gross, they twisted And they twisted Deuteronomy 24 so that the oral tradition now of the Hillel school stated, and these are direct quotes from the oral tradition, I am not making this up, that a man could divorce his wife if she were lazy, if she were barren, if she was a deaf mute, if she had epilepsy, if she had leprosy, if she had warts, okay, warts, who hasn't had warts? The oral tradition physically said he could divorce her if she was wedge-shaped. What's wedge-shaped? Turnip-shaped. Hammer-shaped. Is she some sort of swimmer or something? What's that? If she had a weird-shaped head. Poor posture. By the way, you don't want to sit up, okay? (laughs) Fitting hair. (laughs) No eyebrows. One eyebrow. That's true. Crossed eyes. (laughs) Big eyes. Small eyes. Big ears. Little ears. Missing teeth. Nice tooth. A swollen belly. Dark complexion. Bony ankles. Everybody got bony ankles. Swollen feet. Bow-legged. Big toes. And honey, if she was ambidextrous, you're out. That's her. He could divorce his wife if she ate something that he had forbidden her to eat. No soap for you, okay? (laughs) If her parents moved into the same town as they, whoa. If her hair was unbound when she went out, if she spoke to any other man, if she burned the supper or simply found someone who was prettier. Not offering sexual relationships, not providing intimacy as much as he wanted, permitted him to divorce his wife and find another. Instead of sex outside of marriage, instead of adultery, both potentially sins in the Old Testament law which would bring about your death. So instead of that, by lust, the oral tradition invented and gave men the permission to sleep around. All they had to do is give one wife their divorce certificate and find another. That's what's going on in the first century. And this is what Jesus is describing in his sermon in verse 31. Take a look, verse 31, remember? It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's all you do. Just do the paperwork and you're good to go. And like me, hopefully you're disgusted by the Hillel school, even though, I mean, it would be comical if it weren't so sad. There are a bunch of hypocrites using divorce to pursue their lust and selfishness, but it's no different than today's no-fault divorce. No different. In the Sermon on the Mount, in no uncertain terms, Christ condemns the idea of frivolous divorce. He wants to stop this cycle of adultery. And a wife in particular had to be protected from such insanity in that culture. Marriage itself, though, is a sacred, 
It's ordained by God. It's an institute created by God as a gift of God, and we dare not trifle with it. So, number five. Then, even though divorce is conditionally permitted, it is never commanded. Conditionally permitted, it's never commanded. Don't misunderstand. The Lord never commands divorce. Never. He hates divorce. He made that very clear, Malachi 2.16. But for the innocent party, if marriage is broken by adultery from Matthew 5 or 19, or the marriage is broken by a believing spouse being abandoned by the unbelieving partner in 1 Corinthians 7.15, those two exceptions, divorce is allowed. But for adultery and abandonment, divorce is only permitted. It is not required. From Genesis to Revelation, nothing in the Bible mandates divorce. Nothing. Even in the controversial passage that's found in Ezra chapter 9 and 10, when the Israelites intermarried with the pagans around them, it was most likely, and that's a tough passage, it was most likely the people of Israel themselves who overreacted to Ezra's preaching on the seriousness of their sin, who in their zeal divorced their pagan spouses. That's really what's going on there. They most likely, the people of Israel, overreacted and divorced their spouses, not that God or not that Ezra commanded them to do so. I don't believe anywhere you'll find a command to divorce. God hates divorce, never commands it. So number six in your outline, when there are biblical grounds, reconciliation is desired but not required. Desired but not required. Not only did God never command divorce, but the God who saves us by his grace. The incredible God that loves the unlovely, that's me. The one who forgives the vile sinner, that's all of us. The one who reconciles his enemies and makes them his friends to himself. That's our God. He loves it when his children imitate his character and reconcile with their adulterous spouse. He loves it. Only when there's genuine repentance, that's got to be there. God loves reconciliation. God loves restoration. Reconciliation glorifies him. Reconciliation displays his gospel. Through the gospel, our Lord delights in putting lives back together. Can I hear an amen to that? Listen, I can parade 25 couples in front of you this morning in this congregation. Their marriage was a disaster, and they were on the brink. And God, in his word and by his grace, now makes them a model that we love and we, we esteem. That's how powerful our God is. Amen? He does that. He brings broken marriages and broken homes band together. And through the gospel, he delights in doing that. And he can and will do that. But, get this, adultery and abandonment break the marriage. The adulterer broke the marriage. And it is not required for the wounded spouse to take their adulterous partner back, even if they repent, because the adulterer, by his own actions, broke the marriage. And God in His grace allows for divorce to the innocent party. We don't like that in our culture. We don't like consequences. Listen, abandonment and adultery have serious consequences. Serious. And when there's adultery and abandonment, you and I are not to necessarily think less of an innocent party if they don't restore the marriage. Because the adulterer, not the innocent party, but the adulterer broke the marriage. And the consequences... Adultery and abandonment are very serious. 
when there are biblical grounds, reconciliation is desired but not required. Number seven, those guilty of adultery from unbiblical divorce should repent. Those guilty of adultery from unbiblical divorce should repent. Not one of you in this room is capable of going back in time and undoing the past. Can I hear an amen to that? Listen, if we had that ability, there's no question I would be rushing back in the past trying to undo some things. Anybody with me on this? Yeah, you try to undo, but we have to live in the present. We live in the now. And you can't, and I can't, undo some things, and divorce on unbiblical grounds is sin. When you remarry for any reason other than sexual immorality or desertion by an unbeliever, that is sin. Don't run away yet. Okay, again, that abandonment is much broader, but don't run away. God is a gracious and forgiving God. Amen? He is. Who immediately forgives repentant sin, and the new marriage is in a state of adultery until in your heart you repent of your sin. Divorced Christians who have remarried on unbiblical grounds should ask God for his forgiveness in their hearts and mean that. And they should also ask forgiveness of their prior spouses whom they've wronged and seek to reconcile as much as possible. You must not, they must not divorce their current spouse and reunite with their previous spouses. No, that is absolutely wrong. That is not what the Bible teaches. You begin afresh with your current spouse by following God's standards By remaining faithful to your current partner, you do what is right by being right with those you've wronged and the charge of Scripture in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at what? Peace with all men. You don't dump your current spouse. You just make things right with your God and your previous spouse. Many believers, and I know them, have asked God and previous spouses for their forgiveness and end up becoming model marriages. Examples for others to follow. Displays of God's grace. Because of the trials of the past, they were committed to faithfulness and massive fidelity. And they display what the gospel can do in and through a marriage and a home. Don't excuse your past failure. Acknowledge them. Confess your sin. Repent of them. And then move forward in the grace, forgiveness, and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Number eight, your Lord expects divorce to be the rare exception among his people. There are people sitting next to you today, and there's a bunch of them. We have marriages here at FBC that people have been married over 50 years. When I tell people that I've been married to the love of my life for 42 years, I get, what? Shock! People are just going crazy. They react to this situation. They're amazed. Sometimes they're envious. Sometimes they're even suspicious. Really? What's going on? Marriage, and the reason for that is because it's been under attack for 50 years. Over a half a century, and divorce is the norm, shacking up is the norm, and marriage is viewed as restrictive, unnecessary, archaic, and even abusive. Marriage. But divorce must never be the norm in the church. Never. Regardless of your past, as believers, you're not only freed from the penalty of sin, you are freed from the power of sin. You have a new nature. You're indwelt with the all-powerful Holy Spirit who indwells you. You've been regenerated with a new heart, and you can love the unlovely. You can rekindle 
an affection. You can commit to a relationship. You can restore that which is broken. You can rebuild a broken home. Amen? By God's grace. Your dependence on God himself working through you. Biblical marriage demands the supernatural. Christ through you. Therefore, you must depend on the Spirit of God and step out in obedience. Dependently. Relying on the Spirit of God to work. A marriage that lives in this context by the Beatitudes. Remember Jesus talked about these incredible, humble, creating Beatitudes that give the foundation for what he's talking about right now. Don't be disjointed with what he's talked about. It's just like my early church hero and expositional preacher, Chrysostom. He said this, quote, For he who is meek, one of the Beatitudes, he is a, a peacemaker, one of the Beatitudes. He who is poor in spirit, a Beatitude. He who is merciful, another Beatitude. How shall he cast out his wife? He wouldn't do that if he's living out the Beatitudes. So understand, as a repenting sinner, and hopefully you are, who daily desires the Lord's forgiveness, you and I gladly extend that same forgiveness to our spouses. As someone who's experienced the incredible reconciliation You were God's enemy, and he made you family. That's called reconciliation. He restored that relationship. We who have experienced that can extend that in our marriages. This is the Lord's command. This is the Lord's will. This is the Lord's heart. If you want to read more about this, Divorce and Remarriage by Jay Adams. Divorce Before You Say I Don't by Lou Paolo. But let's take this home. Ready? Letter A in your outline. Commit to remove the word divorce from being considered or spoken. Just stop thinking about it and stop using it. Just take it off the table. As a born-again believer, you got to take divorce off the table, never use it. You have all the resources you need to make that marriage work. If you're a Christian, you've got all you need. The very first command of Scripture for marriage, write it down, is be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, when it says, be filled with the Spirit, in everything give thanks, submit to one another. He tells you, being filled with the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and it leads right into verse 22 through 33 on marriage. It's the beginning and the most important command of marriage. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, what is filled? It's a corporate command, and therefore, it's in the context of the church. Listen, one of the first things you need to do when you're battling is get help. You pray. You start memorizing the word, but you get help. Man to man, woman to woman, couple to couple, but you're in the context of the body. That's, this command is in the context of the body of Christ. We need each other. Can I hear an amen to that? You need people. And listen, even those 50-year marriages, bet you there was some doozy arguments, right? It's nothing new. I mean, we're all in this together till heaven and living with somebody else who's a redeemed, crusty sinner... It's going to be challenging. I was referring to myself and not Gene on the crusty part, okay? To be filled, then, is to be dependently reliant. Not I, but Christ lives through me, the, dependent on the Holy Spirit. Exercise your will. You've got to step out. You've got to exercise your will to step out in obedience to the Scripture. You've got to confess your sin constantly. You've got to seek to serve. Saturate your mind in the Word, and you'll produce fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gen- gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Listen, who doesn't want that in a spouse? Who doesn't want love, joy, peace? But You know, I have never, ever once, ever in counseling marriages ever has somebody come to you, I can't stand my spouse. They're so loving. They're so joyful. It's disgusting. 
Never. They never say that. Through his spirit, God produces a heart of sacrificial love and humble submission necessary to make marriage work. I know some of you right now, you're going, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him. Or it's her, it's her, it's her, it's her. And what Jesus is trying to tell you, it's you, it's you, it's you, it's you. It is. Your eyes are looking in the wrong direction. It's you whom God is speaking to today, and he wants you to be filled with the Spirit so you can manifest the fruit of the Spirit, so you can begin to mend that thing and restore a good relationship. Listen, are you hearing me, couples? Come on, are you hearing? I don't think you are. Stop looking at your spouse to fill your need for love. Stop it. That's like having two ticks and no dog. Stay with me. You and your spouse can't find sustenance from each other. Two ticks. Okay. You must only look to the source of satisfaction, and that's Christ. Christ shed his love abroad in your heart, which when we depend on his spirit, the first fruit is produced is love. Look to Christ for love. Look to your spouse to serve. This is totally not the world. Look to Christ for love. Look to your spouse to serve. Your marriage may be difficult, but Jesus says you can do it. The Lord has given you what you need. Take divorce off the table. Be filled with the Spirit. Like Ruth Graham, you've heard me share this before, uh, she was asked, would she ever consider divorcing evangelist Billy Graham? Ruth Graham, the wife, would you divorce your husband, Billy Graham? She said, divorce, never. Murder, yes. Divorce, never. Let her be. Commit to ramp up your marriage witness to truly display divorce as sin. Listen, in the midst of instructing on marriage in Ephesians 5.32, he says, listen, this is a mystery, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. He says, your marriage is demonstrating Christ and the oneness that he has with his church. Marriage is a witness of Christ and his bride. Some of your marriages are good. Why don't you start praying, Lord, how about you make us great? A great witness. Some of your marriages... If you are verbal about your love for your spouse, if you work at showing your spouse weekly acts of kindness, show it, acts of patience, goodness, even while you struggle with menopause. God is bigger than menopause. I know the men want to say amen. How about you ladies? Listen. Work at listening so you can become one mind, one heart. Develop affections that don't lead to intimacy. They just are affections. Celebrate your spouse's strengths and state them often to yourself and to others. Jean's stewardship, her practicality, her awareness of each day, and her super hot good looks. Okay, keep doing that. It is Christ who is on display in your marriage. Let him shine through you for his glory. And listen, the blessings to your own heart, to your children, to your family, to your world, to your church will be great. Let her see. Commit to turn to Christ to mend your marriage and restore your home. Far too many people, please hear me out, far too many in the church are tares and they're not what? Wheat. They're not the real thing. They're lukewarm lost, not the hot saved. They're soils where the seed of the gospel springs up, but later on shown to be false, choking out from distractions of the world or burning out through trials. 
Which are you? All you have to do is take a look at the book of 1 John. Do you love Christ? Do you obey Christ? Do you believe correctly about Christ? Do you endure in Christ? Do you manifest the fruit of the Spirit through your life? That's 1 John. Listen, if that's not true of you, then you have no confidence that you are truly born again. I mean, you look at Romans 12, Romans 6, and Luke 14. Do you want to obey Christ? Are you willing to do anything for Christ? Have you offered yourself fully and totally in Christ in worship? If not, listen, you need to cry out to Jesus Christ. Often in marriage, it's because one or the other or both don't know Christ. They have Christianity. They've gone to church for years, but they don't have Christ. Christ transforms you. He changes your desires, your want to obey his word. So ask him to give you faith. Cry out for a new heart. Ask for repentance of your sins so you might be born again. Because when Christ is in you, he can change you in such a way that now that person who aggravates you and agitates you causes you so much concern, you can begin to adore You can, and the Lord can mend your marriage. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word and change our lives, that you would take these truths and that we would become people who adore you and adore our spouses. Father, we pray that you might work in the hearts of some, that they might see that they desperately need your son Jesus Christ in order to actually live marriage the way you want. For some of us, it may mean that we've got to repent of some things to make things right. But Father, we also pray that you would work in our midst so that our marriages would not just be good, but they'd be great. They'd be a witness of your character, your person. And Father, we know that this side of heaven is never going to be perfect. There's always going to be issues, and that spouse is going to be used by you to carve us up and make us more like your son. But we pray, Father, that we might engage in that process and demonstrate the love and the reconciliation and the forgiveness and all the joy that can come in that kind of relationship. And we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. And we praise you and thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.